We are back once again with Shift of the Gaze, Archaeology for Our World. I am Michael Kimpan, along with Dr. Joanne Marie Perel, Associate Professor of Theology, Ethics, and the Arts at Chicago Theological Seminary. This is Episode 3, in which we continue our exploration of Dr. Terrell's Ten Tenets of Art. Episodes 1 and 2 engaged Tenets 1 through 6, and today's podcast starts with Tenet number 7, which states, Art may be utilitarian if it bespeaks alliance with life. As a courtesy to our listeners, it should be noted that during the weeks of the recording for this podcast, Dr. Terrell suffered the tragic loss of two family members. We had initially planned to reflect in this third episode on the broad, even global implications of the phrase alliance with life referred to in this seventh tenet. However, while we're eager to excavate the depth of meaning of this phrase and on the tenet itself, specifically as it relates to our forthcoming sociopolitical discussions on shift of the gaze, we thought it wise and appropriate to allow Dr. Terrell to speak to the personal implications of alliance with life in light of her recent losses. Yes, our family was hard hit by the losses on the same day of my elder brother, Joe, from Florida, and my 18-year-old nephew, Giovanni, from Minnesota, both of whom we love dearly and miss already. Joe died suddenly of a massive heart attack. Ironically, at the time of his death, I was doing the thing I love, practicing my art, That is, I was teaching a class on womanist theology on behalf of a colleague at another seminary. I had spoken about the need for womanist scholars, ministers, activists, and artists to own up to all of our creative gifts by making space at womanist venues for artistic expression. Along with survival and liberation, creative self-expression is, for me, a guiding principle for doing black and womanist theology, and for anyone in any profession who sincerely wishes to promote human flourishing. Human flourishing is all of our vocation, all our work. Having survival, liberation, and creative self-expression be decidedly the normative way we view our own and others' humanity lends integrity to our individual and collective reality and struggle. Throughout our entire life together, my relationship with my brother was an extra level of emotional survival regarding the things with which I struggled personally. It pains me immensely that his death was in part both foreseeable and preventable, given that the construction of manhood in an unrelentingly patriarchal and misogynistic society such as ours all but dictates the underdevelopment of human instincts of nurture in men in particular, whether in interpersonal relationships, familial relationships, and even their relationships with themselves. Despite everything he experienced, my brother of blessed memory was a caring person, a true giver, a nurturer. He loved all creatures, people, dogs, trees. He loved life. He allied himself with life. Yet in the end, he died at the tender age of 65, a statistic that faithfully follows the trend among black men who die young relative to the rest of American society, partly because he did not extend his ethic of care to himself enough to recognize the gravity of his medical condition. Merely a couple of hours after I heard about his passing, while I was still in shock, 
a family friend called to inform me about the death of my nephew, Giovanni, actually my grandnephew, from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. My niece, his mother, has already begun to reflect publicly on the stigma within the black community and really all communities connected with suicide. As difficult as it is to process Gino's loss, specifically the recriminations, the speculations about what we could have done to prevent his death, I nonetheless feel it is vitally important for me as Gino's great aunt, as a parent of a teenager myself, and not insignificantly as a theologian, to discuss the rising rates of suicide among youth in our country ages 15 to 24, the underlying causes of suicide, the elimination of stigma around mental health challenges young people may face, and suicide itself. It is important to me as an artist, as a playwright, singer, songwriter, and poet, to situate myself on the side of young people, to align myself with their lives, their struggles, and to enhance their self-image, to help them regard themselves as beings with sacred worth through the ways I interact with them, with the ways I think about them, with the ways I talk about them, with the ways I demonstrate my regard for them as human beings vested with dignity, agency, and divinity, and as those having the right to survive, to be free, and to express themselves creatively. Often, this world judges and harshly condemns young people for the ways they express themselves. Not that this was Gino's issue, at least not to my knowledge, but the cultural phenomenon of sagging comes to mind. To older folks such as myself, sagging violates the sense of decorum that has been inculcated in us from birth. Even when we think we are progressive on issues, decorum can take over our senses and we become judgmental about and even incensed at the underwear we don't expect to see and the rebuke of societal norms that we take for granted. Once, while waiting in line at a barbecue joint, I launched into a diatribe about a young man who was also sagging while waiting. My teenage daughter also happened to be in the car. She said to me, If it offends you, don't look at his behind. Look at his face. I did what she asked and looked into the face of a young man whose eyes reflected a beauty of soul that was undeniable. He returned my gaze and smiled, which I almost missed because of a lapse in my commitment to sacramentality. My daughter's wise counsel shifted my gaze and saved me from the hypocrisy of believing that once one has read all the right authors, aligned with all the correct progressive emphases that commend sacramentality, one no longer has to struggle against one's own highly conditioned existence and ideas consciously and unconsciously held. I've been speaking about decorum, which is a deeply traditional element on the spectrum of the politics of respectability, and so its assumptions are part of what may seem naturally expected of citizens in community. It is not as if the proper levels or even the lack of decorum, whatever that looks like for a given person or group, however historically and culturally conditioned the idea of decorum has been, 
and whatever proper means to the adjudicating authorities can guarantee the safety and well-being of young people or even older people of color or will automatically grant them access to the corridors of power they wish to enter. Darkness, too, is relative and a factor in the perception of decorum. It is a horrible fact that worldwide degrees of brownness is a metric by which human worth is assessed and can become a source of risk to darker people. Too regularly in our own culture, the skin tone is what is policed, regardless of how one is attired or what level of education or social accomplishment one has attained. When police detained Professor Henry Louis Gates of Harvard University after he locked himself out of his own home, he likely wasn't sagging or wearing a hoodie as Trayvon Martin was the night of February 26, 2012, when George Zimmerman accosted him and shot the 17-year-old dead. In a routine traffic stop in Nassau Bay, Texas, police officer Henry Hughes forced astronaut Mae Jemison to the ground, injuring her and humiliating her as he arrested her. Decorum is an arbitrary standard that is enforceable or not at any judgmental whim. Decorum meant nothing to Ferguson, Missouri police as the body of Michael Brown Jr. lay on the ground uncovered for four hours after one of their own, former officer Darren Wilson, shot and killed him. So violating decorum is discretionary for those in authority. Yet violating decorum is often a necessary response in order to object vigorously to one's dehumanization and to affirm one's somebodiness. Sandra Bland's indecorous language to convicted Officer Brian Encinia was not sufficient cause for the cowardly way he verbally assaulted and brutally hogtied her and finally arrested her, leading to her death in mysterious circumstances in the Waller County Jail in Hempstead, Texas, to which I responded by writing the song, Purple Blues. I got the blues, I got the blues, I got the deep purple, womanist consciousness, self-loving, superwoman, broken-hearted black woman blues, deep purple blues. Every day I gotta pray, cause I don't wanna be tomorrow's bad news. The blues, as you know, can be rather indecorous, raunchy even. But the blues always expresses alliance with life. Not life as we wish it to be, but life as it is actually lived out. In struggle, in brokenheartedness, in otherwise inarticulable pain. This song is tinged with the purple pain of the African-American experience, a melodramatic response to the absurd, surreal circumstances in which any of us can find ourselves at any point in time which can lead to our demise, whether by the hands of sworn officers of the law in our own homes and or white supremacist terrorists in our churches and other public spaces, or increasingly by our own hands when the despondency and dystopia in which we are navigating our lives become too much to bear. My point in sharing Gino's story and these reflections is that young people need and African-American people need to know, no less than others and perhaps even more so, 
that they bear the image and imprimatur of divinity. They have sacred worth. They have permission to explore the range of their creative gifts and impulses. They have purpose no matter where they may be in their journey towards its discovery. They are entitled to joy. Sometimes we have to fight for it, sometimes seemingly alone. But if we can shift our gaze, if we can lift up our eyes to the hills, to the many places from where help can come, we may be able to find family, friends, strangers even, who have a word that opens up new possibilities for the direction our lives can take. We may even find a God who allies with us all along the pathways of life, although they are sometimes torturous and sometimes glorious. I'm reminded of our responsibility as individuals living consciously to create and maintain communities which notice and develop, support, and sometimes even bear the burden of the struggles, trials, and tribulations that come as a consequence of living in a world that is not as it should be. The psalmist's confidence in help coming from the Lord can and should become confidence in a renewed notion of community's responsibility allied with the lives of its members, lives that are abundantly fulfilled in the tangible acts of seeking and finding and affirming beauty together, as well as practicing the art of presence in simply being there for one another in the midst of the valleys of life. In my earliest years of vocational ministry, I had the opportunity to work in the Colorado Rocky Mountains with a parachurch organization focused on discipleship and team building. Our outfitting company utilized each day of the week to highlight a particular high adventure activity, ranging from a day of high and low ropes courses, rock climbing and rappelling in the Cheyenne Canyon or the Colorado Springs Garden of the Gods, mountain biking, whitewater rafting on the Arkansas River, and of course, peak climbing. Our teams would guide groups to hike up to the tops of the 14,000-foot bluffs of the Collegiate Peaks, utilizing the majestic mountainous environment to highlight what we called spiritual parallels, tangible metaphors from each adventure to help students and leaders articulate their own spiritual journeys, fears and hopes and relationships, etc. One such expression stemming from a peak climbing adventure with a team of executives led one CEO to the conclusion that while hiking, it's very easy to look down at the ground to focus solely on the steps up the path of the mountain, carefully placing one foot in front of another, all the while careful to settle each step onto solid ground rather than the loose gravel above the tree line. This particular individual had stopped to catch their breath near the summit and once they had, realized that until that point, for several hours, in fact, they'd been missing the breathtaking view of the mountain stream-fed lake in the valley below us while they meticulously placed one foot in front of the other. It was not until he had stopped to rest with his climbing companions to take a breather that he made this observation. Though this event took place prior to cell phones and there were as yet no Instagram selfies to take, the lesson of looking up and recognizing not only where you're headed, but that you're not alone along the journey has always stuck with me like a snapshot in my mind. While it's important to focus on where our steps are taking us and to take each step intentionally, to live consciously and with the perspective of sacramentality requires looking up. And it is the purpose of our podcast to help ourselves and others shift our gaze 
from a merely individualistic view of our life struggles to a more informed perspective on how things got to be the way they are, why we feel inadequate to the standards of a world enamored with power, essentially defined by money and materialism, and not allied life with the actual well-being and interests of every individual, of every family, of whole communities, of whole peoples, of every living creature, of the earth itself, of the looming cosmos, when clearly it is within our capacity to do so. Dr. Terrell, thank you so much for your vulnerability in expressing your reflections of this tenet in light of the difficult circumstances you've faced in the past few weeks. In spite of this tragic loss, I know that you're eager to get into uh, the practical principles of this tenet and also its origins for our listeners. Where does your seventh tenet of the ten tenets originate? This marvelous seventh tenet is taken from the writings of the late father Angelbert Ving from Cameroon, who wrote extensively on the interplay between art and theology in his book, L'Afrique dans l'Église, Parole d'une Croyant, translated Africa in the Church, Confessions of a Believer, and numerous other writings. Father Mving was himself a visual artist, a painter and sketch artist, who could doodle a masterpiece while he spoke with you briefly. As a Jesuit priest who was simultaneously situated as the patriarch of his rather large extended biological family and community, he maintained African traditional values of Ubuntu, a philosophy which promotes ethical communalism, earth care, and an orientation towards justice. Born in 1930 as a college student, Father Mving had studied art and learned the European classics. Yet he felt that he did not and could not come into his own as an artist until he studied and emulated the various art forms generated through the African gaze. In conjunction with his calling to the Catholic priesthood, he was intellectually shaped in the philosophy of Pan-Africanism, consonant with the negritude movement of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The Negritude Movement was primarily a literary movement in Francophone countries that paralleled and found resonance in North America in the writings generated during the Harlem Renaissance. This long and rich intellectual heritage of continental Africans and diasporic Africans manifested in the Religious Academy in the publication in 1968 of James Cone's Black Theology and Black Power and issued in a tectonic ontological shift from the totalizing ways white theology, though it was not called that, conducted its business, as though the plight of the poor and oppressed people of earth was a matter of no consequence, so that today the parameters of theological discourse are so significantly widened by the voices of black and feminist and womanist and mujerista and native and menjung and queer and gender non-conforming folks. This is the same historical trajectory that saw nearly all African countries with all of their resources becoming ostensibly self-ruled, but in actuality coming under the economic control of multinational corporations, privately owned organizations, and world financial institutions that keep them poor and immiserated. 
Against this backdrop of colonialist entrenchment of power and authority and resources in the hands of white people, Father Mving, O.K. Bimwenyi, Dr. Cohn, and a number of others from various countries became charter members of the Ecumenical Association of Third World Theologians established in 1975. Faced with the absolute need to affirm the life and humanity of African peoples, despite the determination of the West to keep them underdeveloped and unstable economically and militarily, as well as it relates to their self-regard, Dr. Mving articulated the concept of anthropological poverty. Up until his brutal murder in 1995, these were the basic facts of his existence, that he, as an artist and as a sterling, empathetic, Ubuntu-minded, justice-seeking theologian, could not simply ignore, even as his Latin American Catholic counterparts, Gustavo Gutierrez, Leonardo and Clodovis Boff, uh, Juan Luis Segundo, and many others were developing liberation theology in response to the theological constraints of the Catholic Church and their own colonial legacy of massive poverty, creating base ecclesial communities to redeem Catholicism from its pious individualism and critiquing the capitalist foundations of their nation states that permitted such spiritually demoralizing material poverty. Thus the tenet, Art may be utilitarian if it bespeaks alliance with life, is not a slam on art purists who may deny the tendentiousness of art in favor of a concept of art that is agenda-less, that comes purely from the skill and giftedness, imagination, and heart of the artist. As we stated in the second episode of this podcast, we know that art can be generated or usurped in the furtherance of evil. But we wish to affirm through this tenet, rooted in the desire to remedy the reality of oppression in the lives of most of the citizens of earth, that art may be generated in the service of good for the purpose of allying ourselves with all who suffer. It could be argued that the perspective of the art purist seeking to create art for art's sake alone can, in fact, promote the cause of art itself carrying with it the potential to create beauty and joy in the eye of the beholder and thus can potentially bespeak an alliance with life. It should be noted, alliance with life is an intriguing phrase as it relates to the Augustinian concept of sacramentality and creates questions for contemplation and reflection which would be dissatisfied with only a surface-level treatment. We must ask, whose life and what do we mean by alliance? The definition of these terms determines our understanding of this tenet, or perhaps better, our orientation, the place from which we hold our perspective or gaze, and is at least in large part established by what life to which we believe ourselves to be allied or invested. The problems of toxic masculinity and misogyny, white nationalism and American exceptionalism come to mind as stunted expressions of the human potential in bespeaking alliance with life for all people with particular attention paid to the marginalized and oppressed. It is here, I think, that a concept of sacramentality with a gaze interrupted quite literally shifted away from 
Ellison's aforementioned normative gaze of whiteness or toxic masculinity not only carries the capacity to disrupt the status quo at a personal or individual level, but also in creating a collective conscience of what it is that we mean by living and what type of life we are aligned with. It is in this way that we can begin to see the potential within art to shape a society to be or not to be accustomed to a particular way of being. Doing art consciously can, and I think does, have an impact on broader society's structural ability and awareness to be allied with life. I do not deny that the beauty of a painting or a sculpture or a song or scenery can be quite life-affirming and that an artist can have no other agenda than to inspire oneself or others on a personal level. But artists can have a social agenda too, and they do not have to hide that fact. Art can be utilitarian if it bespeaks alliance with life. I am affirming this tenet for the conscious and conscientious agenda of allying with those who are the victims of the scorched earth policies of those in power, who are regularly denied the perquisites of life, survival, liberation, and creative self-expression, who are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, who are being killed all the day long by telling their stories, by privileging their expressions, by gazing upon their faces, beholding them as children of God, and reflecting back to them their unique beauty and infinite worth, whether they are those troubled souls with suicidal ideations, or the dignity-seeking Rohingya people of Myanmar, or citizens of Hong Kong seeking a more responsive and democratic government, or Central American immigrants seeking asylum at our borders, or millions of displaced and dispossessed Palestinians, or millions of Kurds seeking to preserve their way of life and their very lives in Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, or sub-Saharan African people seeking economic refuge in Europe, or African Americans, young and older, minding our own business in our own homes or cars or places of recreation and worship or LGBTQIA folks everywhere who are harassed and demeaned and murdered and spoken of with either condemnation from religious communities or barely a comment affirming their sacred worth. Though the controllers of discourse interpret them with the agenda of maintaining their perceived power, all of our sacred texts teach that the God of life is the God of the oppressed, and it is the bounden duty of every believer in God to be on God's side in the struggle for human dignity, for the right to live, be free, and express ourselves creatively in just societies and in spiritual communion. The Bhagavad Gita refers to this usefulness to God as instrumentality for Krishna's sake. And if one believes in humanity, in the power of human agency, in human imagination, in human intelligence, and not least in the human capacity to love, then we need to bring everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have to bear on the trouble in the world, including our consciousness with regard to the art we cannot help to make. Art can be utilitarian if it bespeaks alliance with life. In affirming this tenet of art, 
I intend to redeem the concept of utility, that is, of intentional usefulness in a tragic and wonderful world that is crying out to exchange its ashes for beauty. And that concludes this, the third episode of Shift of the Gaze, Our Theology for Our World. Join us for the fourth installment of Shift of the Gaze when we discuss the eighth of Dr. Terrell's Ten Tenets of Art, which is this. Art, like beauty, is in the eye, ear, and heart of the beholder, hearer, and lover. Thus, it is both the endeavor and the relationship between artist and audience that counts more than the performance itself. Performance still counts. And speaking of performance, we again close with Anders Paulson's Dance to Life from his remarkable album, Don Hugan's Sanctuary. In the coming days, as Dr. Terrell would say, in your creative work and embodiment of a sacramental gaze, wherever you are, whatever you experience, we do hope you dance. And remember, art, like beauty, is in the eye, the ear, and the heart of the beholder, the hearer, and the lover.